Welcome to Carbon Times. With the UK hosting COP26 this year, the Carbon Times podcast has been developed to get the industry talking, to share journeys, and more importantly, share knowledge. Carbon Profile has sponsored this podcast to help their clients and the wider industry learn from each other and pull together to really push the decarbonisation of the UK. We are starting with what we know best, the real estate industry. With the UK government putting their 10-point plan for the green industrial revolution in place, Carbon Times will be running podcast series to explore the topics around the 10-point plan. In series one, we begin with greener buildings, with the objective to drive better building performance and move away from fossil fuels. We know that 80% of buildings in use today will still be in use in 2050, and that real estate accounts for 40% of the UK total carbon emissions. Each series from this podcast will explore topics taking the key goals of COP26 to form the discussion. The key goals being adaptation, mitigation, finance and collaboration. For the real estate industry, we will explore owning and managing property, green leases, tenants obligations, the costs and the impact on property prices. We have interviewed some of the best from industry leaders, regulation setters, companies that are leading initiatives and those driving programs to work towards the current key dates associated with the Greener Buildings Plan and the drive to net zero carbon emissions. We want to provide insight across our industry, highlighting the challenges and the ambitions. We will highlight practical examples of how industry specialists are driving change across their sphere of influence. We all have a responsibility to collaborate and develop a world-leading approach to the decarbonisation of the spaces and the places we use. None of us underestimates the challenges ahead, but history has shown that when nations come together in common cause, there is always room for hope. Working side by side, we have the ability to solve the most insurmountable problems and to triumph over the greatest of adversities. I, for one, hope that this conference will be one of those rare occasions where everyone will have the chance to rise above the politics of the moment and achieve true statesmanship. It is the hope of many that the legacy of this summit, written in history books yet to be printed, will describe you as the leaders who did not pass up the opportunity and that you answered the call of those future generations. That you left this conference as a community of nations with a determination, a desire and a plan to address the impact of climate change and to recognize that the time for words has now moved to the time for action. Welcome back to the Carbon Times podcast. This is episode four, where we'll be looking at the impact on valuation that the decarbonisation of the UK real estate might have. We're lucky to be joined by Peter O'Brien, who is part of the valuation consultancy team at Averson Young. Peter, would you mind giving us a quick introduction to yourself? Yes, sure. Thank you. I'm MD and Principal at Averson Young, and I run the valuation department as a whole. It's a large valuation team. 
with uh, surveyors across the UK in all of our offices, and we have offices in all of the major cities in the UK. And from our client-based perspective, it's a range of banks, funds, and property companies, as well as public sector organisations. And we cover all sectors of the market, so office, retail, logistics, and residential, but also some of the more alternative sectors of the market, such as uh, hotels, student accommodation, uh, roadside assets, and, and quarries, etc. So it's a big range of assets that we cover. And the key question that is coming to us on a regular basis from our client base, across that client base and across the asset classes, is what do these changes in EPC requirements that are coming down the track mean for us and mean for the real estate that we're lending on and the real estate that we own? And as valuers, um, we we have to be um, improving our knowledge in this area to be able to advise clients effectively in this space. And we're watching it very closely. And EPC is just one area of the market, but there are new um, other ratings that are coming into the UK and changing things rapidly. But EPC seems to be the one metric at the moment because it is the regulatory change that is actually coming down the track very quickly right now and will start to bite in 2025. Well, all of that shows that we've chosen the right person to talk to you about the subject, which is which is great from our point of view. You make an interesting point there around EPCs. You know, obviously, EPCs is a large part of the organisation that I work for, Carbon Profile, of what we do. And very much at the moment, it's the same conversation we're having with our clients. Our clients are talking to us about their EPCs, about the changes in the MEES regulations, their drive to be, you know, banned B by 2030, and how they're using that to inform the wider journey around net zero and the wider ESG agenda, which falls into that and using it as a baselining exercise. So it's a good tool. But you also mentioned some of the other tools that are coming to the UK, and those are really going to drive the way that we go forward as well. I mean, some of the ESOS stuff that hit the industry before was good. We know that ESOS is being extended now as well to include some smaller and medium enterprises, especially around the logistics and industrial areas, which will be another good another good driver. But you've also got energy efficiency schemes such as Neighbours, which has come to the UK, which is based at looking at efficiency of UK offices. So we all know there's a big desire out there and we all know that a lot of action needs to take place for us to be able to decarbonize all of the buildings in the UK. Some you know, six and a half million commercial buildings, properties that exist across the UK. We all know it's ultimately a good thing to be able to do it, but it is going to cost money and it is going to impact on the value that is attributed to properties as we go through the next 25 years. As a general point, how are you seeing either positively or negatively the the impact that energy performance and this whole conversation around decarbonisation is having on properties? Very interesting point. I think it is impacting it very positively. You have responsible property owners, whether they be private or institutional grade style property owners, who are approaching this all differently to each other, but very much on the front foot in many cases in that sort of sector of the market. And they are got line of sight that uh, this grade B requirements coming down the track and you know it's going to be in place by 2030 on, based on the consultation. Now, a grade B today, EPC, may be different to a grade B in uh, 2030. Mm-hmm. That's something that's very much at the front of their forefront of their mind. So those types of clients are saying to us, well, actually, when we are refurbishing now, we're aiming for a grade B plus 
to try and future-proof um, that point in time that we don't need to spend more money on retrofitting these assets to improve their EPC. And so that's an interesting point there, that the government is actually investigating the veracity of EPCs, how people are being trained, what the training schemes are, what the syllabus is like, all those elements to see if they can actually improve that to ensure that there's more consistency across the market around how EPCs are applied. And that's in the forefront of the client's mind as well, in that how much can they put their faith in EPCs as at today? How much faith can they have in the EPC as at 2030? And that's why mm-hmm. the clients in that group, they're really just trying to push the boundary that bit further and go, like I said, to a grade B plus and really thinking about how they can improve the building in other ways far and outside of what EPCs even offer. So that's a sort of sectoral group of clients who are going way ahead of the pack at the moment. And there are quite a few in that, that particular grouping um, who are taking this on the front foot and they're well capitalized. They have the mm-hmm. cash to do this. Um, you do have institutional grade clients where they're reliant on investment from private pension funds, et cetera. And that investment, that capital will only seek out or they will only make it available to these funds, some of them listed, if it has a home um, from an ESG perspective. Mm-hmm. So it has to target an ESG type of asset as opposed to targeting something that is going to not meet that 2030 deadline. And what we do see is those clients making quite serious decisions around what they do with assets that will never meet the grade B in in 2030. And they're disposing of those assets. They call them stranded assets, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And these are assets that might be built to suit for a certain occupier many years ago. And it's been let on a long lease to a new occupier and the clients acquired it for that long lease income. But they know in the background, it can never be retrofitted to a grade B standard. And therefore, they'd rather dispose of it now than uh, continue with that asset and, and, and take on that liability. So we're seeing a lot of that as well. People right-sizing their portfolios to prepare themselves for this 2030 deadline and also ensure that the equity that they use to invest in property can continue to find a home because all the ESG credentials are going to be met. There's some great points there. And it is really good to see when we're talking to clients that a lot of them do have that same approach and they are approaching the agenda in the same way, especially when you say around things like people trying to future proof their estates rather than heading for just the target. You know, where we work with organizations quite strongly at the moment is around that band B versus band C objective. So, you know, you can continue to strive towards your band C objective, but that leaves you then three years, you know, post 2027 when of compliance before the 2030 deadline comes in. And, you know, none of us are sure at the moment exactly what the ramifications of that will be in terms of the, you know, what implications will be for the tenant, whether the Can we still use those buildings post 2030? You know, all of these questions are yet to be answered, but they are standards that are coming. We know that the dates are very unlikely to be shifted and we know that the standards are unlikely to be changed now. It's only really the the finer details out of the consultation from June that they're looking to establish now. The bit around quality of the data within the EPC, again, is something that's really important. We did a test recently where with all of our new recruits, we got them to keep a log of wherever possible, what was the previous EPC before we undertook our work and did the EPC and what was the difference? And notwithstanding the the long age differences, you know, because something that was a B 
10 years ago now will not be a B today, as you quite rightly said, just because of the, you know, the world moves on, the software, the SBEN software model has moved on. All of the aspects that bring you to that number have moved on. So really understanding the building and the constituent parts that build the EPC is where we're helping clients on that initial journey to be able to adequately and accurately baseline where they particularly are. And it's often things like construction methods that if they don't know exactly what the makeup of the walls and the ceilings are, for example, then small intrusive surveys can understand exactly what those are, which can then give you more points by using the correct U values rather than than default values within the within the software models. And I think that's one of the challenges that we're helping clients to overcome is just that consistency of quality, accurate data. And the second aspect, I think only a couple of weeks ago that where they're announcing the new Part L requirements that are going to come, and the building regulations are going to change in tune with that. That naturally is going to change the SBEM models and it's going to make the EPC requirements slightly more stringent. So again, that's, you know, that's something that's really coming. Where do you see the biggest drive at the moment or the easiest wins, I guess, would be the right way to look at it? That you talk about that complexity where an institution has found a client that they've worked with, they've built them a building which entirely suits that client, that client outgrows that building and they move on, you know, they're still in the same town maybe, but they've moved on to a newer, more suitable space. And then you've got a building left that had now is designed for a tenant that no longer needs it. That conversion is a challenge. Where are the easy conversions or where are the quick wins being made? I think the quick wins are being made in regional markets where you have established markets that are rapidly changing as individual cities, if you take that as an example, and growing as individual cities, and the market is driving the rental values in those spaces, in, the, in those locations. Mm-hmm. And there is a limited supply of, of good quality space. And changing an EPC on a building like that, where it's more standardized building, you go back to Shedden Core and you do a full-scale refurbishment of those types of buildings, you're getting a gain because you're improving the EPC on the building and therefore you're attracting a better quality tenant who uh, will most likely take a longer lease, who will most likely lease a building more quickly. So the vacant space that you're left with when you've refurbished a building will lease more quickly. So you're, you're getting a gain in that respect. But equally, the market is carrying that gain for you as well. So some of it is due to the sustainability um, points of the building, because you might be the only building in that location that is now an A or a B, mm-hmm. and there's no other place for the tenant to locate. So you're getting a gain for that particular reason, but also you're getting a gain on the, the investment side as well, because the, the longevity of the income that you've been able to let the building for is going to be longer and more secure, and therefore the yield will be lower, and therefore you're getting a capital value improvement. So mm-hmm. you get a kind of a market gain and a sustainability gain at the same time, which offsets the cost of improving the building and, and spending that extra money that you want to, you maybe didn't want to spend, but you, you now realize you do have to spend due to regulatory requirements. So, you know, spend that extra money, you're actually getting it offset due to the value you've added. And so those are the easy gains where you've got mm-hmm. quite specific growing locations that are uh, with a, a limited supply of space, a good, good quality space, but you've got major corporates still located in those locations because that's where they've been for a long time. And therefore, mm-hmm. you might be the only building that location they can locate to. And due to their corporate social responsibility, they will pay a premium rent to locate to that building because they can't actually go anywhere else. 
that's a really good point again around landlords aligning themselves to the tenants that they actually want to occupy their spaces and making sure that they are suitable and they hit their own policies. I know from my own experience that talking to clients that are looking to attract the big corporates or fintech organizations or large logistics or data warehousing, that kind of client where they do have really strict CSR requirements. And they're looking to get a 10, 15 year lease. And that might be fine for today, but then that corporate organization would be in breach of their own development policies and their own requirements to improve in after seven or eight years. So they're not going to be able to take on that type of lease. So that's another challenge I see out there for landlords. What is good, and I've seen, which I think surprised some people, is that more landlords than people think have been preparing for this in the background, that they've been you know, I think that the 2018 deadline and the drive out of the F and G's that, you know, people saw that they had to actually take action and they needed to do something about that. I think that sparked a flame in, in certain organizations. And those are the ones that are really driving forward on this. I, I mean, do you see the same and, and which type of organizations is making that drive? Yeah, uh, we do see that a lot, actually. Um, it's kind of adapt or fail type of attitude in mm -hmm. that, you know, to be ahead of the market, you need to find your space and competitive advantage. And, and this is seen as gaining a competitive advantage. And there's probably a narrow window of time which to do this because eventually, given the regulatory requirements coming down a track, everyone has to jump on this train. There's a train going along. You have to get on it at some point. And the ones who are ahead of that on the train are going to make the most gains. So I think those people who've adapted more quickly are the ones that are more forward thinking, the, the ones that are actually well capitalized. So the institutional funds, for example, they were way ahead of the game already. And, and that mm -hmm. was being driven by a number of factors, not only the regulatory requirements, but also the corporate social responsibility requirements, and also the type of equity that they're sourcing to invest on behalf of that equity is seeking out green credentials. So it's been coming for a long time from, from the corporate's perspective and for the funds and listed funds perspective and institutional grade investments. But there are private property companies, well private, well, well capitalized private property companies that you know are backed by international equity that have seen this for a long time. Some of them it's Nordic equity that's coming from the Nordics. And you know, let's face it, the Nordics were quite far forward on this a long time ago, way ahead yeah. of the UK. And that equity being invested over here, seeking out a return on investment, is always going to try and look for the green credentials. And that's why they're a lot further forward. Those types of well capitalized funds and propcos are a lot further forward in, than some others. And that is quite stark. You, you can see that in some cases. Uh, you touched on an important point there actually. And it kind of, something that came out of COP26 is what has the COVID pandemic done to the green agenda? You know, has it actually put it all back? If we go back to the GFC period, the green agenda really got put to one side. You know, it was like, right, yeah, we know how to do this. We know there's a deadline for all of this. And we know that we really need to make change. But we've got other things to think about right now. So we're mm. going to park that over here and we're going to focus on, you know, survival. During this pandemic, what it has done because it's been a global pandemic and a global problem, what it's actually done is focus people's minds around the climate change agenda, around you know a global problem being COVID and how it's impacted us and what are the key risks coming down the track and what might be another risk, just like COVID. And right in front of us, we know it is the climate change agenda. So if anything, the pandemic has made the focus on the sustainability agenda even more from what we're seeing and for what we're seeing from the COP26 messaging that's coming out of that. And that is also what we're seeing played out in the real estate agenda as well. 
Yeah, it's really, really good to see in in a, in a lot of circumstances that this has because I I was fearful exactly the same as as many were that you know post pandemic we would be essentially starting again or people would be institutes and and organisations would be using it as a reason to delay the agenda exactly yeah yeah no we need to get ourselves back on track or or whatever but yeah we have seen exactly the same it's been a real eye opening area and I think you're right in terms of it's focused people's mind that this is everybody's problem you know and we've all got to that collaboration piece and us all pulling together is is a is a the only way that this is going to work agreed agreed i think you know it's really what we're seeing being driven by institutions in that respect they've been on this journey for a very long time yeah and globally you can see that they're driving that change and it has to come from them i mean what's coming out of the cop 26 is that governments around the world have to collaborate and have to set targets etc but there's not been very much talk about the private sector and how that has to play a huge part as well and he's playing a huge part as well already and it's comforting to know that that's already in play and that will hopefully speed up the change that we're seeing and that's actually required in the real estate industry to, to get to where we need to. Excellent. I found some industries are struggling a little bit more than others to be able to collaborate and to be able to embrace the changes that are required. Retail being a really good example. I think retail have probably out of most industries suffered one of the worst hit, you know, going back to the pandemic, it's been one of the most struggling industries and a real turbulent time for them. So now being in a space where potentially they're going to have to invest some of their own capital and money to be able to upgrade buildings that they own and buildings that they, you know, that they've got FRA leases with or whatever it might be. But also the landlord then is in the background trying to drive the agenda, which again, I mean, one of the things the landlord needs to consider from a retail perspective is disruption, you know, like, and that whatever changes are going to be made to a building, if it's whilst the tenant is in situ, it's going to be disruptive. So have you had conversations in that area or, or how are your landlords responding to that retail piece? Yeah, it's a very interesting one. I think a key dynamic of this particular area is retail is actually, the ownership of retail is disparately spread yeah. from, you know, individuals like you and I, um, all the way up to big landlords that own portfolios of very high-grade retail, institutional-grade retail across the UK. And because you've got that disparately spread ownership, it's hard for landlords in that respect and retailers to collaborate in that, that aspect. So it's yeah. almost a little bit more locked out. But your point about how disruptive this would be and the need to improve the EPC of a building to a grade B whilst the tenant is in situ is a major problem for retail because that is a huge issue around footfall to a particular retail unit. Mm -hmm. If you have scaffolding up the outside of a building and your signage is not as visible for some reason or other, or your shop front isn't as visible as it normally is, then your trade is going to be affected. So what we're seeing is from certain retailers is that they're going to refuse access and refuse for this to take place. And that's a problem for a landlord because above a retail unit is residential, mm -hmm. is office, is student, whatever, whatever it might be. And in order to upgrade the office or student accommodation, whatever accommodation is above, scaffolding has to go up the side of the building sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, more often than not. 
and that impacts the retailer. So there's going to be a big challenge around that and, and the accessibility for landlords to make these changes to meet this deadline in 2030. And we see that as a problem. You go to one retailer and they say, fine, we need to do it. And we have a social responsibility for this. So we're very much accepting of it. And we're going to have to be very clever about how it's done and how quickly it's done. But then we see other large retailers as well turning around and saying, absolutely not. We're not, you know, we're coming through a pandemic. We're coming out the other side of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. This is the last thing we need. So it's mixed reception in the retail space. Yeah, I definitely think there are going to be there are going to be a number of challenges in that area. I think the point you make around scaffolding and availability of the visual of the retail, I think, is really important. That not only the signage and the branding, but I know from experience that you know retailers on their business plans, the shop window is a contributory factor. You know, they expect that they expect the shop window to drive fifteen percent of the sales. You know, of between the, especially around things like Christmas. You know that. That display in the window, we all know, you know, walking down Oxford Street around Christmas is a lovely experience because of all the shop windows. So if we're taking that away from the retailer, then again, how is that going to be managed? Because any level of funding that will be available in the future is going to be more practical funding around the program, the equipment, the materials, etc. Not really around, you know, that type of agenda or because it's unquantifiable. Compensation. Compensation. Yeah. 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 Agrees. Totally agree. One thing that has come out of the COP26 is that the costs for this need to actually be borne by everybody. Yes. And and the key real estate angle for that is, you know, if you've got a situation like you mentioned earlier on with a building that has been built to suit for a particular occupier and the occupier's moved on and the building's been sold and the new landlord's in place and they've leased up that building over a period of time, but it's a building that's not really built to suit for any other occupier other than the occupier that it was built for. You know, retrofitting that type of asset to upgrade it to grade B is, is a challenge in itself and potentially more costly and potentially so costly that it's not worth doing. And if that is the case, then you have institutions disposing of those assets, mm-hmm. values being impacted because nobody wants them because of the challenges around the cost of upgrading. Mm. And you have an asset there that just becomes almost illiquid. Yeah. Now, those types of assets are just going to be sat there and languishing. And unless there's sort of co- you know, money put into this by the government or a fund set up for this, then you're going to have a lot of buildings that potentially uh, will just languish and, and never be occupied again. In theory, well, they might be put out for redevelopment, but if they're in locations which aren't, aren't really core locations, yeah. which sometimes is the case for those types of assets, um, then will they ever be occupied again? And this would potentially, you know, it would exempt you potentially because of the prohibitive costs of re- retrofitting them. So you might be exempt from the EPC potentially, but equally, the impact on the value of that building might mean it will never be able to be sold again. So they'll just languish and, and fall in value. So it's a key challenge that we see for some assets that potentially, you know, are just not in core locations and they're never going to be redeveloped for any other purpose because they shouldn't have been there in the first place other than for that particular occupier they're built for. Yeah. I've got quite a few questions to come off <laughs> off the back of just that piece because there's so many really key challenging parts in that particular problem. I mean, the worst case scenario we could have is that all these properties are left to languish. And, you know, in 2030, we start to see, I don't know, even 15% of commercial properties across the UK would make an awful scene for the UK to have all these empty buildings here, you know, scattered around here, there and everywhere. There needs to be some help somewhere with that. There needs to be some funding available to make sure these buildings are are converted properly. I mean, 
you know, you've heard the statistic that 80% of buildings in use today will still be in use in 2050. So that redevelopment piece is a, is another challenge because well, also you, you create more carbon. Absolutely, yeah. So embodied... you knock it down and you 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 pour more concrete in the ground, and and that doesn't solve the problem; it makes the problem worse. So you know, there's no clarity around how that will be dealt with, and there's no clarity around okay, the building's not fit for purpose by 2030, and yes, it is exempt. But what do we do with that building? There's yeah. no clarity around how the government is going to help with that. And I think that's an important area because I think there are quite a few buildings that fall into that category uh-huh. and, and they present yeah, potentially a big challenge for the government on, on what will happen with those. The exemption piece, I think, will be really important around that as well, where working with our clients, when we carry out the baselining exercises for them and when we're moving through their decision making, we're trying to help them avoid exemptions as much as possible. We know it won't be possible in all circumstances and that, you know, exemptions will be a a required part. One we see because we see a, a, a compliance challenge going forward. We all know how complex and difficult it can be to be compliant with a building anyway, just in terms of statutory compliance for all the all the equipment that's in a building from itself. So this is going to add another layer of complexity. Do you have a current EPC? Is it at the right standard? Do you have a current exemption? Is it a three-year rolling exemption? Is it a five-year rolling exemption? What do you have to do on the anniversary of each three or five-year period? You know, all of those questions which are yet really to be established. The one area which I think people aren't really aware of is one of the benefits around the seven-year payback exemption is for technology. So the idea behind some of the thinking of that exemption is that we could examine a building today, a commercial building today, and do everything we can and get it only to a low C or maybe a high D because that seven year payback kicks in then and it would be cost prohibitive to do the solar measures that let's say for argument's sake that would be required to bring that building up to the highest standard it could possibly be. But in five years time, that might not be the case. You know, the innovation and technology moves so fast and so diversely that the exemption periods are designed to pick that up. So what's exempt today might not be exempt in five years because technology's moved on to such a degree that it makes it worthwhile. So I've worked in pollution control. I'm an enforcement officer originally before I went into consultancy. So I remember the days around air, land and water pollution where you had a principle that was called BATNIC, which was best available technology, not experiencing, or sorry, not experiencing exceeding costs or something along those very lines. That existed for about 15 years. And then what they did was they just removed NEEC off the end. So then it became a point where the tipping point of technology meant that it was never too expensive with the offset of pollution. So I can see us rolling in that direction as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's an important point. You know, the seven-year payback rule, it's a simple calculation. And I think it's going to be quite transparent. Whether it picks up every situation is something still to be questioned on, mm-hmm. on, on what's, whether it's fit for purpose. But it does need to be rolling, absolutely, because technology is moving on, materials are changing, and what's applicable today might not be applicable in five years' time. And the cost of materials, you know, what we're seeing is cost of materials going up right now. That's the nature of the situation that we're in. But hopefully in time, those will come down. And that will enable people to retrofit buildings more efficiently and effectively. And yes, it, it might mean that those buildings that are stranded assets that people don't want that our values have actually 
in theory, would have been rebased on those assets, which mm-hmm. will show you'll have opportunistic investors, which, which see opportunity in that. There's enough profit margin in it because they can acquire it for a certain price and fit out costs that come down. And therefore, they can feel they can still make a profit and, and achieve a, a good rent in a, a reasonable location. There's so many other dynamics at, at play for each individual asset on that specific point. Uh, one of the mo- most important things being the market at that point mm-hmm. in time. Does that really support refurbishment of that particular asset in that location? Yeah. But um, it, you know, these are all important things to think about. But there will be opportunistic investors, thankfully, in time that are willing to hoover up those types of assets. But they might languish for a period um, before technology catches up. We already see that in some spaces, don't we, with commercial office space. So over the last 10 years you've seen a drive to where commercial office space and again it's it's primarily regional office space that it sits in languish because it had that exact same issue that you know the the kind of regional presence of some of the big corporates have just diminished and they all have taken spaces in the major the major hubs and the major cities around the uk you know your birmingham manchester leeds london you know, etc. There's been a trend to convert these to flats, hasn't there, over over these years? Or student or hotels, or flats mainly. Yeah. How's that from a valuation world? How's that conversion work? Is it is it beneficial to the landlord to do that? I mean, it really depends on where it is and, and what it is and, and the cost of conversion, but and also the underlying residential values in that particular location. You know, if the underlying residential values is in a regional city, but it might be a secondary city, if the underlying residential values support it, then there can be quite a lot of profit to be made. And we've seen certain investors undertake this as a business plan over and over and over, and it's been very, very successful. Mm-hmm. But it really depends on where the market is at that point in time and whether residential values support that conversion but it works very successfully and it's been proven to work uh, very successfully and you know the, the other element is the planning element as well and the investors are able to swerve and avoid the affordable housing provision by converting office to flats yeah and so that made the profits much more attractive mm-hmm. and it meant that it could happen a lot more quickly equally if you've got a city where or a town where it's got an oversupply of office stock Therefore, rental values are never under pressure. If you take out a load of that stock out for residential, all of a sudden there's limited stock for people to occupy mm. and that pushes rental values up. So the, the owners of the office stock actually benefit and the owners of the um, office stock that was no longer fit for purpose and they converted to residential, they benefit as well. So everyone's a winner. But that's not what happens in every single situation. There are some yeah. situations where it doesn't work at all. I wonder if there is a future out there for more of that type of conversion of use opportunities to go forward and more and more spaces to be able to think outside the box and and move away from their traditional use. I think one of the biggest challenges with that will be the efficiency that you can create in those spaces. I mean, I've I've known people to occupy those types of conversions and they're not without challenges because, you know, the initial design of that building wasn't to facilitate people living in it all the time in flats, you know. So introducing an increased number of personal services around baths and showers and toilets and and all of those kind of things, soundproofing, heat efficiency, all floor to ceiling height, floor to ceiling height. Yeah. (laughs) Big expansive windows, you know, that that are only single glazed and don't really do anything. You know, all of all of these which make for nice design features to, to convert it into a flat. But I don't know if they can hold their efficiency as they go forward. So I don't know if that market is going to be impacted further because the costs are going to go up to make sure that 
those flats remain efficient past 2050, you know, from a PRS point of view? Yeah, agreed. That 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 was a key challenge. I think, you know, it's the technology and improvement in technology around soundproofing and insulation, all those aspects that which will come at a cost, but those will hopefully overcome those issues in time. But right now presents more challenges, definitely. It shows for some innovative thinking, though, that, you know, someone at some stage thought, hang on a minute, we've got all these tall buildings there. Everyone needs a flat. <laughs> Let's get on to that conversion piece. So it speaks to, you know, as a species, I guess, our human beings, we are quite innovative. We seem to problem solve very well, as David Attenborough did indeed say that, you know, we are a species of problem solvers. So we're the right people to be doing this. Do you see any other advances in innovation or technology that are helping to drive the agenda? Yeah, I mean, there's the idea of a digital twin. So a building, every building has a digital twin. And this mm -hmm. is simply the actual makeup of the building in terms of the M&E, in terms of the fit out, in terms of the insulation, the U-value, how much concrete is the makeup of the building, how much steel, all those aspects are held digitally about the building in a digital format. And so it's a file, basically. A digital twin is simply a file on the building which is held digitally. Um, but all aspects of data around how the building was made up and what its energy performance is in a particular point in time and how that changes, what it's made out of when it was built, how it was built. Uh, if that's held in a digital format, and, and we do that for all buildings around the world, and that's the challenge. And this is digital. The idea of a digital twin has been around for a long time, and some landlords and institutional owners have already well forward with this. Yeah. But if you're producing a digital twin for every single building around the world, then there's certain data points as we retrofit those buildings that will come out of those retrofit scenarios that will be that data will be able to mine and reuse to be able to use on another particular building before a retrofit. So be able to plan your fit out, plan your retrofit of a building ahead of undertaking any retrofit to understand and, and be absolutely certain that you're going to achieve the best U value and achieve the best efficiency for a building. So it's all really access to data, but we won't get that data until there's a digital twin on every single building and that build, those buildings have been retrofitted and we can understand how the performance was after the retrofit. But that's going to feed into, I think, a lot of the decision making around uh, retrofitting buildings to yeah. improve energy performance going forward. And that's that's quite an interesting idea going forward, I think. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of technological advances, which we think are going to play a part of the future around this. Only recently we've been speaking to an organisation who are providing, because again, data driven is the way to make these decisions, isn't it? Is to make sure that you've got the ability, what data impacts your decision making and do you have enough of it, I guess, are the two you know, big, biggest questions. Their, their overall idea or premise of, of the product that they offer is that they want to help buildings make more intelligent decisions outside of you know, people making those decisions because we can only process what we know at the time to be able to make our decisions. So if we're going to use more energy on a building to warm it up, cool it down, do whatever it might be based on our own ability to make decisions, we're really limited in the amount of decision options that we have. If we were able to take all of the millions of nodes, so everything to do with the weather, people's clothing for that particular season, 
the amount of people that are likely to be in that space, how frequently they're going to move about, all of these things that we can't process ourselves and have them all in one algorithm that then helps the building to make the decision on what temperature it should be. What's the most optimized way that it can be efficient in running it based on all of those data points, which is an amazing idea and an amazing you know way forward, potentially. That type of approach and that type of thing, are you seeing any more of that where people are really throwing out new ideas? Absolutely. And there's loads of technology that's being introduced into the market around that, around having nodes and communication tools within a building, recording all aspects of that building, including air quality, et cetera. And what we're really seeing is the new buildings, you know, Briam rated buildings, et cetera, that are going up. They're designed in that way. They're designed to capture sunlight in a certain way yeah. and those sorts of things. And, and the more and more that we do that, you know, but by no means we at the crescendo of that right now, every new building that goes up has a new piece of technology in it that moves that dial on even further. Mm-hmm. But there's loads more that can be done in that respect. That the building adapts basically multiple times a day for how it's being used. And, and that's really the future of efficiency, you know, energy efficiency, which is where we need to get to to have carbon neutral buildings in their operational sense going forward. And those are the key themes that we're seeing at the moment is, is what is uh, a carbon neutral building look like from an operational sense yeah. um, in, in its lifetime. And that's the key challenge, I think. And that's definitely something we need to consider now rather than you know getting to the point of maximum theoretical efficiency of a building and then filling it with people that just use it terribly and it's just a massively inefficient building then from that point of view which, which is, is the you know controlling people's behavior is always going to be a big challenge again i've got a retail example where from a corporate policy that all lights in their shops have to be left on till at least midnight they don't trade after 5.30, but they want everyone walking. But again, we go back to the window, every, everyone walking past that store to see how bright and shiny and beautiful it is inside. Policies like that will have to change. You know, that organisation can't maintain that stance and have operational inefficiencies in a world where we're all driving for a more efficient world. The other part that I find really interesting off the back of us learning more around buildings is the incidental benefits that come off the back of it as well. So the sustainability agenda is helping people to focus more, not only technologically, but environmentally as well. So a big part of decarbonizing and making your building more sustainable is considering new technologies and new things like green walls and greening the grey from a concrete perspective, biodiversity, all of these aspects, which are coming in in legislation. The new planning act will require, you know, at least 10%, I think it's all 20% um, biodiversity net gain in every project that goes through planning, which is, you know, a, a great move. A lot of institutional lenders, et cetera, are pushing in that direction as well, which is good. But the actual health effects to people as well, if you design that building with sustainability in mind, you've got all that green infrastructure in there, as well as the air quality, et cetera, the health and well-being of the people that use that space then is markedly different. I did some studies a few years ago around air quality, if we just take that as one particular point, and the impact of the right green plants in an office space can have a really significant impact on the CO2 levels in an office space. And the most damaging part about having high CO2 levels in an office space is your ability to be able to think cognitively. Productivity, yeah. Yeah, it affects your, I think that the numbers are some something like a concentration of over 600 parts per million in the air can affect your cognitive ability by 30 to 50%. On average, 
the parts per million of CO2 in a London office space exceeds 1300. Right. So interesting. It's over double. Yeah. So, you know, and if you think about some of those high flying organizations in London, so they spend, I mean, I know from experience that to put a bum on a seat in a city office, you're looking in excess of £10,000 per employee for that particular space. So that's number one cost. You're bringing in the best of the best. You want the best talents. You've probably spent 20 to 40 grand in time, recruitment fees, et cetera, to be able to actually find that person. So you're 50, 60 grand down before you do it. And then you put them in a space where their brain is not able to perform at its maximum cognitive ability. <laughs> it's just such a, a dichotomy of, of problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. One important point you know, to that is what we're seeing right now. You've got a load of corporates in the city of London who haven't come back to the office yet. And you've got corporates who want everyone to come back to the office yet and can't get the people back in the office because yeah. they've got a new found life of working from home or yeah. they want to spend more time with their family, which is absolutely fine. And that mm-hmm. goes to mental well-being. But those same corporates are thinking, how do we get our employees back to the office? Yeah. And there has to be a completely different space. Your point to the air quality, it's not something that an employee thinks about every second of the day. They don't realize their cognitive abilities have actually been hindered. You know, they're just feeling a bit sleepy and they'll have another coffee. Exactly. But, yeah. um, you know, the other elements around the office, around living walls, around sort of breakout areas, collaboration spaces, spaces to get away from your desk and have a game of table tennis. All those sort of aspects around corporate's next move in terms of space um, are all really being thought about right now. Uh, you know, there's huge buildings in the central London, certainly on our street right here on Gresham Street, which are just still unoccupied, including our own. You know, we have got a few people in the office now, but it's still not as occupied as it was. Mm. And it's these big, large corporates, banks and, and other corporate houses are, are saying things like, oh, we need 30% less space. We need yeah. 20% less space. They haven't actually made that decision yet. Um, you know, the idea that, that they'll need 20 or 30% less space, I don't think is actually going to be completely borne out. But those are the sorts of ideas that, that they're sort of sticking out into the market and discussing at the moment. But it's more how do we want to use our space and what the agenda around our corporate social responsibility around where we need to locate to ensure that all these things tick the boxes. So, you know, if you've got a corporate that's coming to the end of their lease and they want to sign a 10-year lease um, on their next building, they're not going to just go and sign a 10-year lease on on an average building because they know that it's actually going to put them in a bad place when it comes to the green agenda internally. So they're having to make really quite big decisions around this and not making them quickly by any measure, mm-hmm. but more around how do we want to use our space and how can we get the maximum efficiency out of our employees and how can we make sure they come back to the office and make it a really inviting space that people want to spend their time in. Yeah, because that balance is definitely needed to be addressed, isn't it? I mean, it's funny because you see that shift over time, haven't we? You know, being of a certain generation, you know, office space used to have plants in it and it used to have, you know, nice green bits. And then you'd have, you know, the cleaners would come around once a week and dust the plants. And, you know, you had to have someone responsible for watering it. But that was the problem. It was the maintenance cost of plants that really got them costed out of, of office space being created. You know, that the question was, well, if they're not plastic, well, even if they're plastic, someone still has to dust them. But if they're yeah. real, someone has to water them, you know, and that, but it's coming back. And it, and, and that appreciation of, of the importance is a great thing to see. A couple of questions I'll ask you, see if you can give a yes, no, or not yet type answer for these. In terms of landlords moving in the right direction, do you think they are, as a general rule, moving in the right direction? 
difficult to give a yes, no, not yet to that one. For the landlords and, and corporates and public sector organisations that we're dealing with, yeah. I'd say there's sort of 15 to 20% of people in that sector that are on the front foot. Um, they've been on the front foot a long time and they are pulling and moving in the right direction and they're well capitalised to do so and they know where to go, what to do, and they're taking the right advice about it. And if they don't know the advice, they're seeking it out through technology, through advice from people like us and yourself. And, and I think that that's sort of 15 to 20% of the market are in that space. And then I th- there's another 15 to 20%, should we say, in the space of they fully understand the green agenda and they they understand that there is regulatory change coming down the track. They understand from a corporate perspective, maybe they're not a major corporate, but from a corporate perspective, they need to change direction and they need to move in, in a, a more efficient, sustainable direction, but they don't know how. And so they haven't got the answers. They're not willing to admit they don't have the answers. They'd rather just say, oh, yes, we're, we're on board with this and we're moving in the right direction and the green agenda is very important to us. But, you know, they wouldn't admit for one second that there's loads of questions left unanswered. Yeah. But at least they understand and they've got over that hump and they're moving towards it. So let's say that's 50% of the market to a varying degree. And then I'd say there's another 50% of the market, the remaining 50% of the market, that is, you know, everything below that. The extreme bottom end, people with their heads in the sand, and these would be, you know, the property sector is, in terms of ownership, is made up of of a huge, disparately spread group of people from major corporates and, and institutional owners and public sector and government owners to all the way down to you and I and the man on the street or woman on the street, shall I say, um, who has a property for their own private pension fund or for investment purposes. Yeah. And it's the bottom end, which is a, a big sector of the market, the bottom end of that scale, I think, are people who don't know what to do. Mm. There isn't enough advice out there to, to make the changes and they don't quite understand it, but they understand, yes, I know there's a lot of chat about it. Look at COP26. Everyone knows about COP26. You know, everybody understands what their responsibilities are around the environment, et cetera, but do they understand it around real estate? Yeah. And, and so I think it's a huge group of people that sit in that space and it's going to take quite a bit of education to move them forwards. It's quite a scary thought, really. That potentially means that there's at least, you know, three million properties out there where are sat there with somebody who owns that property that currently is sitting there without any clue on what to do in the next nine years that's going to help them get compliant which is great and we've spoken on a number of different episodes of this podcast around the need for people to get more more informed and the need for information to get out there into the market I love yes, no questions just because I find them impossible to answer. So they normally lead on to a good question, a good response, which is great. See if if this one works any better, that making energy efficiencies to a building will only ever increase its value. As a valuer, I'll say um, technically no. Only from the point of view of, uh, you know, there there are probably rare situations Uh where um, making energy improvements to a building from an EPC perspective, you know, there might be certain big changes you need to make to a building that would actually, you you might have to actually hive off a whole area of building that you just can't improve it enough. Yeah. Um, Or there are changes to the other part of the building that you need to make um, that would mean you have to hive off another area of the building for some other plant and et cetera use, which would take away floor area potentially. So in that, those situations where you're removing floor area as a result of the changes you have to make to improve to the building, which will be rare, but in those situations, I could see potentially the value would not go up. But I'd say, you know, 
on the flip side, the majority of cases, you'd see a value improvement because uh, you're going to be able to lease the building more quickly. You'll achieve ideally a higher rent and the resilience of that income will be stronger and the yield you can achieve for that uh, asset be lower, in which case the value would be higher. So in the majority of cases, it would be an improvement, but not all. Excellent. Great That's answer. Value is uh, disclaimer there. <laughs> a great answer. I've just got a couple more questions and I think we'll wrap it up if that's okay. So um, firstly, do you see the messaging, the response, people's actions are holistically right? Is it at every level? Is it at board level? Is it at senior manager level, mid-management, employee, graduate and everyone else besides? No, I think that's a definite no. And I think the rationale for that is that it's the information that's available to everybody. You know, mm-hmm. maybe at the board level, there's a there's a lot of information available about the direction the company needs to go in and what it really means to the board and why they have to try and uh, transition and pivot in this new direction. And then in the mid-tier, there might be people there without that knowledge and they're just focused on the day job and they're focused on taking the company forward and, and, and that's what's in front of them. But then at the junior level, generally younger group of people who are much more focused on this. And there are some pretty interesting statistics around, you know, as a result of the pandemic, as they were coming out of it, there's, there's commentary around it's being called the great resignation and, and people are leaving their jobs because yeah. you know, they've had a shock in their life and they want to do something differently with yeah. their life. But one of the key things that is on the agenda for anybody looking for a new job is that their employer reflects the same values that they have around yeah the environment and, and challenges of, to do with the environment. And that, you know, used to be towards the back and things like, oh, can I work from home every now and then was towards the front and, you know, what, what's my salary going to be? And now that's sort of in the top three um, is do they have the same agenda that I do? And, and do I want to work here for that reason? Is this the right place for me and my values as a person? And that, that, I think that's a big, big pivot that we've seen as a result of the pandemic and a positive one at junior level because essentially there, that's the group of people that will, be pushing on with this change long after you and I retired, hopefully. Yeah. Well, th- that's been a key part of what I've noticed on a personal level, as well as a professional level, that that generation and the generations below them are definitely driving the agenda. They're much more understanding. I think they have, if we go back to information like you were talking about, I think they have, they live in an age where they have all the information humanly possible at their fingertips. You know, if they want to know the deepest knowledge about decarbonization and how it works they can find out the deepest knowledge that they that they want very very easily you know and i think i my children are in their 20s and especially my youngest when he was deciding which university to go to their environmental performance their credentials and their future aspirations were really important to him in terms of the decision on him making where he would want to spend his money as a university you know attendee which i i found fascinating, fascinating. absolutely yeah. fascinating because that wasn't in you know anywhere near my list of criteria mine, <laughs> mine was you know how big is it how many people am i going to meet and and how many pubs are in the locality absolutely yeah yeah same here same here it's a really positive thing to see that that generation are really going to help drive. You know, and we've got we've got things like you know Greta Thunberg, who's got international notoriety just on you know on exactly on that agenda. And I think it's it is a really positive thing to see. I'll just close out with a question then that I ask a lot of people a lot of the time. If you were to have the opportunity tomorrow to go to lunch with Boris Johnson, and you knew that you could influence his mind coming out of that on this agenda. 
what kind of things would you be wanting him to come out thinking? I think from a real estate perspective now, I'd be encouraging him to set aside a green fund that is to be distributed across the market in many ways to solve and unlock some of the challenges that we're seeing. Like I said, this has to be shared by everyone yeah. as a problem. You know, not only the occupier, so the occupier is sharing the cost by paying a higher rent, yeah. um, but that's just because they've got a social responsibility and that's the place they have to locate because of that. And it has to be shared by the landlord because it's essentially their building. But equally, there are going to be key challenges with that and specific locations and stranded assets, which are going to be problematic. And without a centralized funding from the government to, to unlock those issues, they are going to languish. There'll be a situation where you do have assets languishing. And equally, some of the towns that we see around the UK with retail, problems with retail, retail needs more money. It's not, it's not just because of the pandemic and the challenges that retail faces. If you put EPC and you put sustainability on top of all of that, the challenges are immense. Yeah. And so we need a centralized fund to deal with this. And there needs to be you know, a way of capturing that through taxes on carbon emissions. And we're already seeing that in the United States at the moment, in New York at the moment, and we'll see that play out across the world. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's how the funding is going to be recouped and it needs to be injected back into to deal with the issues that we see in front of us. That's a really good message. I couldn't agree more. I think that funding challenge is one that's just going to keep coming around. I don't think this can be done alone. I don't think it can be done just with private money. I think it needs commitment from all the governments around the world to pull together and, and really, really help us all drive this agenda. Agreed. Agreed. Can I be cheeky? Can I put that question back at you? Of course you can. Yeah. <laughs> so so from, uh, from my point of view, I, I've obviously thought about this in, in quite depth because, you know, I ask the question all the time of other people i'm quite welcome that you've asked me actually that's good. it's quite good i get to do it in return mine would be very similar around the commitment of funding and also i would urge the driving of quite strict regulation which sometimes moves out of the british way of doing things from a regulatory point of view that we prefer to guide people from a regulatory function but there has been great examples from my own career in in pollution and pollution control has been a real key area where regulation made the difference. So I think trying to please everybody is not the way to do this. Securing funding and driving regulation, which will upset some people and will upset some people within your own party, Mr. Johnson, but that's exactly what needs to be done. Agreed. And on the pollution point, actually, what do you think about the policy at the moment to pollute the seas with sewage? It makes oh, of course, it, you, if, I know what you want to be, be, but, you know, that that's just can't happen, can it? It's it just no, it makes be. it makes me really sad, you know, like in that sense. And it reminds me of an old anecdote that we always used to talk about at university when we were learning about pollution control. And years ago, before the EU regulations around bathing waters, that the UK had to disclose how many beaches around the UK were designated as as sort of, you know, bathing beaches. Yeah. Now, to do that, you had to have a certain quality of water in that space up to a certain distance, which would, you know, legally allow you to be compliant from the EU perspective. And at the time, our serving prime minister, Mrs Thatcher, the report that the UK sent back to the EU basically said that we had less public beaches than most landlocked countries in 
Europe, <laughs> which Crazy. was just insane, which showed that, 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 you know, the policy that we had in place then was being damaging to the waters around the UK. And all we're going to do now is reintroduce a policy, which, you know, so it, it feels like a bit draconian. We're going backwards yeah. on something we did so well to improve. Yeah. Well, it's because it's all down to cost, isn't it? it definitely it's the, it's the cost. cost on the water companies. He doesn't want to upset the water companies by forcing them to continue with that cost. And is that that the water companies are saying to him, well, we're going to go under if this happens and therefore yeah. we're going to need more government funding mm-hmm. and we can't survive like that? Probably because you know, he doesn't want to have to put the, the hand in the pocket of the government to prop up those companies. Who knows? But I suppose it's that kind of challenge that he's being faced with. But the answer is not to continue to open those pipes and pollute our, our yeah definitely our not seeds. definitely not let's go backwards it just seems definitely so, not. yeah and that, that kind of so far that doesn't seem like the uk way does it no. you know to get so far and prove something to such a great standard and then take it backwards i think the cost point there though just before we do wrap up is again really important because at what stage do we get cost and carbon on the same line because at the moment they're not and cost is still king to us. And that's the industry that we've grown up in. We've grown up in a real estate world where you can get a design that's beautiful and it's got all the singing and dancing technologies in it, et cetera, et cetera. Most of it will get value costed out by the time that project is signed off because that's what happens. Because the the function of the QS is to do exactly that, you know, is to make yeah. it the most cost Agreed. effective way of being able to do it. So that's part of this agenda. That's part of the change that needs to happen as a whole industry. We need cost and carbon on the same line. Agreed. Totally agree. Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we hope you'll join in next time with the Carbon Times podcast.